Welcome to In a Perfect Policy, hosted by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Catalysts for Science Policy, or CASP. At CASP, we work to advocate for science-based policy, engage lawmakers in their policymaking process, and promote science-based outreach within the community. Hey everyone, I'm Maya Gumnett. And I'm Lauren Schrader. Today's episode is part of a series we're doing called Science Policies of a Pandemic, where we delve into some of the key aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ways science policy is or isn't being used to get it under control. Today, we're gonna talk about the early development of COVID-19 tests and how a major university started its own testing program to reopen their campus in the fall of 2020. Before we get to the interviews, I thought we'd give some context about how testing was unfolding in the first few months of the coronavirus pandemic. So going back to early 2020, when the United States was first alerted about the coronavirus pandemic, we quickly moved to start developing tests. Uh, What was really incredible, I realized, was just how quickly scientists organized globally. It was as early as January that Chinese scientists had sequenced the genetic code of the coronavirus and shared it with labs around the world so that they could start making tests. By early February, the CDC had created COVID test kits, and they began shipping them to labs across the country as states were seeing their first cases. But when the labs received the CDC test kits, scientists noticed that they weren't working, and there were weeks that followed where we weren't able to accurately test and isolate COVID-19 cases in the U.S. as the virus was silently spreading. The CDC finally acknowledged and corrected the error with the tests so that labs across the country could finally diagnose COVID cases. This delay in accurate and reliable testing led to an undercount of cases in the first couple months and really prevented us from getting a handle on the spread early on. So these first tests, which are still the most commonly used tests, are called PCR tests. Maya, do you want to briefly describe how a PCR test works? Yeah, so the basic way these tests work is to take a sample from the person's nose or mouth and then see if we can find any of the virus's genetic material called RNA in the sample, indicating that the person's either sick or they've been recently sick with the virus. A scientist in the lab takes the nasal swab sample, uses chemicals to isolate any RNA, and then puts it into a tube with other chemicals and into a PCR machine to record whether there is genetic material from the coronavirus present in that sample. The PCR test is the most common test usually used in the United States and the most accurate one because this system can detect very small amounts of the coronavirus RNA in a sample. However, since these are tests that have to be processed in a lab, it can take three or more days to provide results. Since then, there have been additional types of tests that have been developed and are also being used, right? Yeah. Scientists everywhere, including here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, have risen to the occasion to develop new types of tests. Most are using similar technologies to existing tests, but modifying parts of them to improve accuracy, shorten result time, or allow them to be done using more readily available machines or chemicals. For example, there are rapid tests. Basically, a sample from the nose or throat is placed on a plastic test, and a stripe indicates whether there is coronavirus on the sample. They're great because they don't have to be processed in a lab and can provide results on site in about 15 minutes. 
However, they're less sensitive than PCR tests and were only approved for symptomatic individuals who were at the peak of infection and can miss cases if tested earlier on. And while those tests can tell us who has an active COVID case, we also have the ability to test for COVID antibodies, which uses the presence of these specialized immune cells to indicate a previous COVID infection. We still don't have enough information to draw any conclusions about a person's immunity, even if they have antibodies, though. So with testing technology becoming available, the next step was managing the logistics of getting the tests out into communities. This is where the science policy came in. By early spring, the virus was spreading pretty rapidly in parts of the U.S., but we still weren't even close to enough testing capacity. So at this point, the majority of the tests available were still the PCR-based tests only, and thinking about all the steps in the process of completing one of those tests, the nasal swab, transporting the swab to a lab, the test tubes and chemicals to process it, and the machines to run the samples, all of these pieces have limitations that put a real upper limit on testing capacity, especially when our national coordination of efforts has been lacking. It's gotten a lot better in the past months, but it's an issue we're still dealing with today. But universities around the U.S. have stepped up to help, right? Universities around the U.S. recognize the inadequacy of our testing capacities and pull from their scientists and resources they had, some pairing up with state health departments, to create their own testing operations. A lot of this was driven by universities wanting to reopen their campuses, and these testing operations were a tool for them to help manage the coronavirus spread among their students and employees. UW-Madison was one of these schools creating its own testing program as well as developing new testing technologies. We spoke with two scientists who are part of these efforts. This fall, a member of our team at Catalyst for Science Policy had a chance to tour some of the COVID testing facilities here at UW-Madison with Dr. Keith Polson walking us through the development and implementation of the university's on-site COVID testing program. My name is Keith Polson. I'm the director at the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. It's our pleasure to have you here today to look at uh, what we do at WVDL in a collaboration with the State Laboratory Hygiene and the UW Biotech Center to make the COVID dedicated COVID lab for UW-Madison uh, a possibility. UW-Madison conducts its own on-campus testing operation in the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostics Lab. Dr. Paulson explains how a veterinary science lab got involved in the human COVID testing process. So we, we have that question whether it's uh, people that work in the lab or people on campus of why a veterinary lab. Most people don't even know that the veterinary lab exists in this position right by the School of Veterinary Medicine and the natatorium. And we're one of, I think, 10 or 11 different veterinary diagnostic labs around the country that are helping with the human testing, whether it's on a campus or for their state. Um, and then we started getting these, the, the questions from campus about what would be the best way to provide a dedicated diagnostic lab. And they were talking to the state laboratory hygiene because that's their wheelhouse, right, is human diagnostic tests. We work with them already on a regular basis. We, we do salmonella diagnostics. Anytime there's a, a zoonotic or an infection that's shed between or shared between people and animals, we are, we're on the phone talking to them about what's going on, and we have a lot of collaborative work. So it was a natural, a natural partnership. At present, there are different types of COVID tests and approaches universities are taking, testing their students and staff, as Dr. Polson describes. So right now, 
Um, the testing strategies are going to be unique to each campus and each population. We all learn from each other and oftentimes we're trying to keep up with the Joneses about who can run the best tests and the most amount of samples through. But in reality, you really kind of have to think about what you're going to use that sample for and how is it as part of your entire disease control program that you have. The testing is just one part in that moving machine, lots of cogs in there. When it comes to testing strategies, two key terms are often used. The term sensitivity, or how sensitive a test is to detect disease in a sick person, and the other term specificity, or how accurate the test detection mechanism is so it's not giving false positive results to people who aren't sick. Test development and implementation efforts often require decisions about whether sensitivity or specificity are more important in their testing strategy. Dr. Polson describes this decision-making process at UW as testing efforts were gearing up this fall. We want a very high amount of sensitivity or low false negatives and a very uh, high specificity, which is low false positives. So we decided to use nasal swabs uh, because COVID and the grand majority of our tests are, are not positive, they're negative. Um, we wanna make sure that they can still then be tested for the other common diseases that have a high consequence. Influenza would be the most common one. That being said, capacity has changed since campus made those decisions several weeks ago or several months ago. And we're gonna change and that we have a great team put together on campus to be agile and adaptable to the, dip, the changing needs, needs for campus. So the University of Wisconsin rose to the challenge to quickly establish COVID testing. One question on our minds is what the efforts will look like longer term as the pandemic continues. So sustainability, sustainability is something that we talk about every day. Every week as we're dealing with a new challenge, whether it's a piece of equipment that breaks, we have supply chain issues. You know, when we have companies that are changing their production to make COVID specific things, they're not making their other products. Those products are extremely important, just like in the research labs with your gloves. You know, those gloves are being made and they're being sucked into a different part of that supply chain. Um, the other things we are very concerned about are burnout. The most important people in this entire process are the people that are running the quality control programs. For us to be able to do this testing, the rest of the lab has to pick up the slack. Um, when we've seen this at other diagnostic labs is they can't find enough people to actually run the test and then they get burnt out and leave. So we're running this on second shift because there's fewer people in the building and so we can reutilize some of our equipment that's already there. Um, and then we can also adapt to the samples that are being taken now, we can test them that day. So that was what we learned about some of the testing programs being established at UW-Madison in the summer and fall of 2020. In our next interview, we got to hear more about some of the research happening at UW to help develop new COVID tests. At the end of October, I got a chance to speak with Dr. David O'Connor a professor of pathology and laboratory medicine at UW-Madison about his work collaborating with other scientists around the world in a group called COVEN to develop tests for COVID-19. We also talked about the ways in which testing is being implemented in the United States and some of the shortcomings in our attempts to control the spread of the virus. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. Um, so back in January, 
uh, Tom Friedrich, Shelby O'Connor, and some of our other colleagues from the AIDS Vaccine Research Lab realized that this new virus were, that we were hearing about from China was potentially going to be something that we needed to keep an eye on. So we started a collective of like-minded scientists from around the world. Uh, we named it the Coven uh, and uh, started having weekly Slack calls and a Slack conversation dedicated to learning about the new virus uh, with an emphasis on developing animal models that could be used to evaluate vaccines and therapeutics. So could you quickly explain the difference between sensitivity and specificity for us and maybe how these things might matter when they're applied to a population scale for testing? Yeah, so that was where we started. And so when you think about sensitivity, that's how little of the virus uh, genetic material can you detect in a particular sample. So the less genetic material you can detect in a, you know, say a milliliter of uh, saliva or nasal swab fluid, the more sensitive the assay is. Now, a sensitive assay that can detect minute amounts of virus might suffer because it might be susceptible to false positives because it detects uh, something that's not really this virus or something else. And that's what um, is, is referred to when we talk about specificity. How specific is what you detect for what it is you're looking at? And as we began thinking about the science, the science and the biology of the virus, one of the uh, key early insights uh, that came out in about April was this um, idea that only a small number of people were responsible for a large number of transmission events. This idea that we has been now termed super spreader events. And if you have a lot of super spreaders, that suggests that it's only a small number of people who are really at risk of being highly contagious. Well, what is it that determines if someone is contagious? It stands to reason that the people who are putting out the most virus every time they breathe or sneeze or cough or sing are going to be the people who are the most contagious because they're the ones spewing out the most virus and who are sort of walking around with a plume of virus around them. Well, when we look at the viral loads or how much virus is in a milliliter of saliva or nasal swab, what we see is that a PCR assay uh, very, very sensitive, can often detect down to about a thousand copies of the virus's genetic material in, say, a, a small amount of, of nasal fluid. But some people have as much as a trillion copies, with a T, of virus in that same amount of fluid. So which of those people are more likely to be super spreaders? It's going to be the person who's putting out a hundred billion or a trillion copies, not the person who's putting out a thousand copies or ten thousand copies. And this jibes very closely with uh, what people see when they try to culture a virus or actually grow live virus out of the same fluid. Until people have more than about a million copies of virus in that small amount of fluid, and so we use a milliliter as sort of the standard unit for measuring virus, you can't really grow virus. And so at that point, um, Dave and his company um, remained interested in trying to optimize the sensitivity of LAMP as a PCR replacement, but Tom Shelby and I sort of went in a different direction, which was accepting the fact that LAMP might not be as sensitive as PCR and rather embracing it. 
and saying that it's totally fine that it's not as sensitive as PCR because it's going to detect just those people who are at say a million copies of genetic material and higher. And those are the people who are more contagious or likely to be more contagious. And they're the people we really want to be able to find. And the easier and more inexpensive uh, and the, 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 the more quickly we can find those people, the better. And so our work sort of pivoted and um, began to diverge a little bit from Dave's because we realized that the sort of contagiousness testing would have real applications, especially in what we call congregant settings, places where people come together, whether they're schools or prisons or uh, skilled nursing facilities. Um, and so that's sort of where we have been spending our time in trying to develop and implement this lab testing. I'm also wondering what about the current testing apparatus makes it difficult to test thoroughly at nursing homes and other similar places? Sure. So starting in late February, when the CDC's testing regime for the virus was inadequate, we began working with the University of Wisconsin hospitals and clinics to ask whether any of the people who were showing up at the hospital with influenza-like illness were actually infected with SARS-CoV-2. And so we have the sort of experience in working with uh, virus quantification that lends itself to doing this sort of work. And so we um, partnered with them to develop a PCR and test it on a variety of samples from the hospital. Within a few weeks, the basic PCR test methodology had caught up and the hospital was able to do that itself. But we realized there was going to be a need for additional types of testing, especially tests that didn't uh, use the same supply chain as PCR. We began working on an alternate type of testing called LAMP, which stands for Loop Mediated Isothermal Amplification. It's basically just another way of making lots of copies of the virus's genetic material. But critically, it doesn't require the fancy instrumentation that PCR does, and it uses a different set of supplies so it's supply chain independent from, from PCR. As we learned more about LAMP and we tried to use it on the virus, we realized that uh, it was promising, but that the sensitivity wasn't nearly as good as what you would get with PCR. And so we began working with Dave Beebe's uh, lab and his local companies to try to come up with ways of improving the sensitivity. Dave's specialty is very fast nucleic acid extractions from uh, different types of samples. And so we realized that if we took his RNA extraction and put it in front of one of these lamp reactions, we might have a very sensitive assay uh, that would also be very fast, would be inexpensive, and would not use the supply chain of PCR. I also read that the results of the lamp testing are relatively easy to interpret in terms of like seeing a color change within the tube and so would that make it easier for it to be distributed do you think or what are the advantages for that right so that's the idea so earlier in the summer we were able to put all of the things that were necessary to perform this lamp testing into the back of a minivan and then drive that to different places where you would do the testing and that was a prototype for a solution where you can imagine different schools would have their own mini testing setups where they could process their students and staff and try to uh, use that to keep their schools safe 
by doing you know, surveillance testing that is non-diagnostic. It's not going to reach that diagnostic standard that an FDA-approved test done in a hospital or a clinical lab would, but it would be used as sort of a broad survey to say, okay, this is how many positives we see in school, and here are the people who really are, you know, their samples are concerning. Let's refer them to go get a diagnostic test, and let's take them out of the school while they get the results for it. And so the idea of having a simple color change means that you can build one of these labs for a small amount of money without the sort of expensive instrumentation that you would need for PCR. So if it's going to be realistically a, a, at least a year uh, before a vaccine can be administered to everyone, um, in the interim, do you think we could get to a place where we can have easily available quick enough turnaround test time that we could get COVID more under control in the United States? Well, it's, it's hard. Right now, the virus is spreading so uncontrollably that I don't think any amount of testing alone is going to get uh, to a point of, of, of stability. We really need that combination of social distancing, mask wearing, hand hygiene, and then testing is just one piece of this. Um, but if you get the amount of virus under, under some amount of control, you can imagine how surveillance could be used to stop new, uh, new fires from starting. So think, we think about it as like, um, you know, different levels of a fire. Right now we're in a forest fire. It's, it's uncontrolled. Um, you're going to need the fire department to use all of their resources to basically put that forest fire out or at least tamp it down. Uh, once you get it tamped down, then this sort of testing can be used to stop embers from flaring up and creating new uh, fires. And you do that by basically watching over a school or watching over whatever population you're surveying and saying, okay, there's no one's positive today. No one's contagious. Okay, you do it again a couple of days later. No one's contagious. You do keep doing this every couple of days. And then when someone shows up who might be positive, who has to then be flagged for diagnostic testing, you identify that person before they're symptomatic, before they have an opportunity to spend as much time around other people. And then maybe you smother that ember before it has a chance to create a full-on fire. So with this in mind, how could we be using testing effectively in this situation? Well, I think right now, when someone gets infected, you have two real problems that make it so hard to control this virus. Uh, the first of those problems is that uh, when, and these are biological problems and timing problems, when someone is newly infected, they typically, if they're going to show symptoms, and we now think that about 70 to 80% of people do show some symptoms, they show those symptoms around day four or five after they've been infected. And that tends to coincide with when they have the most virus in their nose and in their throat that they would be expelling into the air. But what happens before you get to that peak is you have a period where they're still potentially expelling a lot of virus into the air, but feel fine. They're walking well. And those individuals are going to be potentially highly contagious before they feel symptoms. And so that's why you can't just wait until someone feels sick and goes in for testing to identify the people who are potentially contagious. And then because we have such a long lag for most of the diagnostic testing that gets performed, your window of opportunity for getting people isolated is measured in hours to maybe a day or two from 
uh, that period when uh, they start having virus that's detectable all the way up to the, when they get to a peak. And if you have testing turnaround times that are 48 to 72 hours, by the time someone gets their test results back, they um, will have potentially exposed other people. They will have blitzed right through that peak. And so the ability to give very rapid turnaround is essential so that if someone is positive, they can go into isolation right away and not have to wait 48 to 72 hours. In that sense, I think about 90 to 95% of the people who are infected in the country don't get an actionable test result back. Either they don't get tested because we know that um, a lot of people don't get tested or the test results come back after they feel sick and after they're already on the way down. And so they're, they're, they're not going to be, um, that test result doesn't do anything to mitigate their potential for transmitting to other people. And so we need to get that 90 to 95% of people who don't find out information about their contagiousness. And we're not gonna get it to 100% no, but if we could get it to 50% or 70% no, that would be a, a huge, uh, a huge win. And so the lamp test would be uh, an, a couple hours turnaround versus the PCR test realistically is like you said, 48, 72 hours, uh, sometimes even longer as we're seeing in certain states. Yeah, exactly. So a lamp test typically takes about 90 minutes to run from start to finish and you can run a couple hundred of them. The embodiment that we're trying to use in schools uh, that we're, you know, we're building out what we hope to be like franchises that schools can use to run their own surveillance programs. Uh, they, the, the students would have take-home kits, the staff would have take-home kits, they would walk in in the morning, they would drop the samples, you would have some number of samples, say 100, 150 samples, you would run them and by the end of the day, you would know if anyone in that group needs to be isolated and, um, you know, referred for diagnostic testing. Uh, there are other even faster tests. Some of the antigen tests that are coming online are even better in terms of turnaround time. Uh, those tests, unfortunately, still require nasal swabs, which is a little bit less uh, user-friendly than the saliva that we use for lamp testing. Uh, and they also tend to be one sample at a time. So in the lamp testing, you can have a team of two or three people that can process 150 samples. Um, I think there will be ways of making the nasal swab testing efficient, but I'm not sure you'll be able to make it quite that efficient. So one thing that we're working towards, and it's probably still a couple months out, is using lamp testing to identify people who are potentially at risk, and then using those on-site antigen tests as a first-pass diagnostic confirmation. So you do that, and then in 15 minutes, you can tell someone, okay, your lamp test was positive, your antigen test uh, shows that you're positive. This is a pretty concerning finding. Go isolate. Um, and, that's, and that's sort of what our, our model is. Though I think it's going to be uh, into the second semester of uh, the academic year uh, before even the earliest schools that we're working with um, have such a model operational. Okay, one final question. What kind of changes could be made in terms of preparing our country's testing infrastructure to prevent a pandemic response like this from happening in the future? Well, I mean, our country's response has been completely inadequate from the beginning. Um, and this goes up and down from the, the top leadership down to people in the community, uh, not taking it seriously and basically fighting back against the science at every point. 
you know, people said it was a hoax and that we should debate whether or not it was a hoax until it was in front of their faces. And so now it's not a hoax, but now it's just not serious. And now it's just not as bad as the flu. And then you see that the hospitals get filled, you know, are filled. And then they, you know, you move the goalposts again. And now you say, okay, so clearly it is kind of serious, but most people aren't dying. And, you know, you just keep moving the goalposts about why we shouldn't take action. And collectively, we see the consequences of that. So, you know, if you look back to the beginning of August, when we already had months of time to get prepared for what was potentially going to happen, um, the state of Wisconsin, uh, where we are, had, um, you know, less than a thousand new cases uh, per day on average. The state of Victoria, which is about the same size uh, and is one of the states in Australia, um, had under a thousand cases per day. And we were at about the same place. And in the ensuing months, Victoria, uh, which includes the large uh, city of Melbourne, which is several million people um, and is, you know, bigger than Milwaukee, which is our largest city, um, you know, had to go into lockdown and they had to close the schools and they had to take a community response that was mobilized from the top and made really difficult decisions about what needed to be prioritized um, so that they could try to bring the virus under control. And in the last couple of days, they've had about one or two new cases registered in the state each day. Meanwhile, we've done what, um, you know, you know uh, we've done some things, uh, but we've had a lot of pushback. We've had a lot of inconsistency in the implementation. Uh, we've had a lot of people who simply don't believe that um, this is something that should force them to modify their behaviors. And we're running um, somewhere between three and 4,000 cases a day. Um, and so you just have to look at those two very similar uh, sized states with similar populations that took different measures and see what the outcomes are to realize that, it's, it's, it, that where we are now was not inevitable. Um, where we are now is the predictable consequence of decisions uh, that have been made going back to the beginning of the epidemic and then not preparing for um, the, the virus uh, to be continuing to be with us. For example, um, we know that this sort of surgical uh, or cloth masks that we all wear around are um, better than nothing. I mean, I, I think there's ample evidence that they're better than nothing. But you, instead of uh, having this conversation about whether we should wear more cloth masks or whether cloth masks work, which is the conversation that we have between people who are pro-mask and anti-mask, we should be asking the question, why hasn't the government produced hundreds of millions or billions of N95 respirators, which are professional grade masks that we know do work? And we know they work because in the hospitals where doctors and nurses are treating people who have huge amounts of virus, they're not seeing every doctor and every nurse and every other person working in a healthcare facility becoming infected. So we know that these N95 masks um, are um, much more potent at filtering the virus than these little homemade masks, but we don't have a government who has, um, you know, invested and um, you know, change the production capacity so that those masks could become ubiquitous. And I think that's a, you know, that's, that's a damning indictment of how poorly we have managed the response in some of the big picture ways, you know, that, that 
would have, you know, no one would be arguing that an N95 doesn't work. Um, and yet there's not enough N95s for everyone who wants to wear them to have them. And yes, I mean, they need to be properly fitted. If you're doing work in a hospital or a science lab, like you need your N95s to be properly fit tested to work maximally. Yeah, I, I get that. But it is still an easy um, and uh, effective, you know, intervention that we could have if we had started back in March and April producing those in, in massive quantities so that everyone, not just healthcare workers, uh, would have access. That was some great info from Dr. O'Connor and Dr. Paulson. What do we think are the main takeaways here? I think I had two reactions. Uh, number one, it's great to see all these people coming together and working literally around the clock, sharing their resources in an attempt to get tests to everyone. But also, it was so frustrating to hear that at that point, still 90% of the tests happening or more were basically pointless in terms of mitigating spread just because the testing and contact tracing wasn't fast enough. Yeah, it was really striking just how much coordination and collaboration is happening in terms of doing the actual testing and in terms of developing the new kinds of tests. And yeah, I agree. It seems really surprising that such a large portion of the tests aren't actionable. So based on what we heard today, what type of science-based policies do we think could be implemented to improve the U.S.'s response to COVID-19? It seems like there's a few key aspects of COVID testing that could be focused on. Utilizing types of tests to decrease turnaround time, also improving our contact tracing system so that specific people know they should get tested and isolate until their testing appointment. And as Dr. O'Connor discussed, the use of surveillance testing to catch people before they're symptomatic. I think another thing to consider is also the timing of better testing policies. If the U.S. had had working tests even a few weeks earlier and had really ramped up the national testing coordination so that in the late springtime period we were catching more of the cases, we could have had more of a handle on spread earlier before we got into summer and fall. It seems like overall, to make our testing more effective, we need policies that prioritize all prevention strategies like masks, distancing, capacity limits, and even stay-at-home measures if needed to take some of the weight off of our testing systems. Testing has come a long way in the last 10 months in the U.S., and some pretty incredible work is being done. But we have to keep in mind that testing alone can't be the first and only line of defense to curb the spread of coronavirus. Thanks for tuning in to In a Perfect Policy with UW-Madison's Catalysts for Science Policy. For more episodes, please check out casp.wisc.edu slash podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review In a Perfect Policy wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Maya Gumnett and Lauren Schrader with help from Sebastian Manzo, Chris Unterberger, Kevin Lauterjong, and Robbie Frank. Thank you to Dr. Keith Paulson and Dr. David O'Connor for answering our questions.